record again. So, uh, so the Berg um, Dalid is okay. So now Hashem basically uh, presented to Moshe Rabbeinu the whole uh, process that is going to lead to Yitzhak Mitzrayim, how the Jews are going to survive once they leave, meaning that they're going to take provisions from the Egyptians. And now Moshe comes with a whole, it's interesting because you can also, um, like a lot of you guys were asking questions about how do you interpret the flow of a nivuah as a dialogue while keeping in mind that really a prophecy occurs in the mind of the Navi and is a process really of the development of the understanding of the Navi that is portrayed in the form of a type of a dialogue. So that might explain to some extent why there is a little bit of a, a constant, like re, re, sort of like a reverting back to issues that, uh, and, a, and a rehashing of issues. Because it could be that these were different prophetic experiences or insights that we're seeing, each one adding an element to the picture. I'm not sure, but it could be. So because up till now, because in the previous parak at the end, Hashem basically laid out for Moshe the whole plan of how it's going to go. And then Moshe says, Vayan Moshe Vayomer, Vein lo yaminuli, Velo yishmeru bekoli, ki yomru kolonirai lecha Hashem. So what is this? So in other words, before, what was, uh, what was the deal? That Moshe would come and teach them the ideas about Hashem that he was taught, the idea of the Yurke Vavke or the Eye Asher Eye, and then say, Pakod Yifkod Elohim Etchem. So he would, but the, the, the question is, how do they know? In other words, he, even if he gives them an understanding of God that's very compelling, and an idea that's very compelling, how do they know that Hashem actually presented him with that idea? How do they know that Hashem really revealed himself to Moshe? That's a separate question. Because he, and, and moreover, I mean, really Hashem just told him at first to go to the Zikinim, right? And to talk to them. He didn't even talk about speaking to the people yet. Now he's concerned, it seems like a broader issue not just the, uh, not only the Zikinim. In other words, you can talk about intellectual stuff with the Zikinim and maybe get them on board with your idea. But what about the ordinary people? Okay, so uh, typically the Zikinim will be uh, easier to convince in a certain way. It's like they say, if you are actually innocent in a court of law, you should ask for a judge, not a jury. You know, because a judge will be able to see through the nonsense of all the lawyers and all of the theatrical stuff and see that you're innocent. Whereas if you're guilty, it's better to have a jury because then you have the possibility of convincing them and persuading them of something that is not true, which is that you are innocent. Um, if you want the judge to see the truth, then it's an advantage to have a judge. So in, in, because he's trained mind and he knows how to see through the um, the uh, kinds of... Uh, of, of you know, the sophistry and the rhetoric of the lawyers. So in this case, uh, Moshe, yeah. So you're going based on the premise that this is a, is a intellectual development of Moshe in his mind through the Nebuah, right? Right. And I understand why we do that for other Nadim because uh, they didn't speak to Hashem Panema Panema, and the laws of Nebuah apply to them in different capacity. But for Moshe Rabbeinu, 
we know that he speaks about Hashem, so why can't we say that this is just a dialogue? Why do we have to say that it's some kind of intellectual maturing rather than an actual dialogue with God? Well, first of all, it's not clear that at this stage of his prophecy, Moshe Rabbeinu was speaking panim el panim yet. That's that's not clear. I I think um, I think it's the opposite. At this stage, he's still having visions and hearing a voice speak to him and things like that, which is a lower level of nevoah than a pure intellectual apprehension that he has later. So um, and and you and you see that the level of the nisim that he's able to implement. Uh, increases in uh, significance over time, which is correlated to the level of nivuah. So it's not clear that he was at that level yet, number one. Number two, even a panim el panim, if Moshe Rabbeinu has a question and he turns to God to understand the tr- uh, a matter better, or if Hashem says, I'm going to destroy the people and Moshe intervenes and prays and there's a dialogue, even that dialogue is really a transformation in Moshe Rabbeinu's relation, way of relating to and understanding God. It's not really, uh, it, it, thinking that panim el panim is, um, panim el panim is the highest type of nivuah, but the problem is that people think that the reason why panim el panim is the highest type of nivuah is because a voice is coming out of the heaven and talking to Moshe, but that's not what panim el panim means. Panim el panim, means that there's no intermediary between the intellect of Moshe and the idea that Hashem is trying to convey, which is something that doesn't happen uh, to a normal person. Meaning, in usual, usually you need some kind of an example or some kind of a concrete, uh, some kind of a concrete and uh, thing through which you perceive an idea. You don't just perceive an idea in the abstract. The fact that Moshe Rabbeinu can perceive things directly. That's what panim el panim means. It doesn't have to do with, um, so even if there's a dialogue, so to speak, whether you take that literally, meaning taking that um, figuratively doesn't mean to take away from panim el panim because uh, it still can be an intellectual development. In other words, it's a breakthrough of in the Navi's mind. Any, any prophecy is a breakthrough in the Navi's mind. Difference between Moshe and other Navi'im is that Moshe apprehends the idea in a in a in, in a clear way without the necessity of any um, imagery, okay? There's no imagery necessary for him later on. Not now. Later on. Yes, hand up. <laughs> you go ahead. You you weren't muted, but now you okay. It doesn't mean that he was able to be awake while the other Nivim had to be asleep. That's also true. That is also true. Okay. Yeah. The Rambam gives a bunch of different things that make the Nivuat Moshe Rabbeinu different. One of them is that he had wakeful Nivuah, where he didn't, but all of them come back to the same thing. Um, all of them come back to the same thing, which is that uh, prophecy that occurs through dreams. I don't know if we ever, oh, we did. We did discuss this last year in Israel because we talked about dreams. So the idea of dreams really and the relationship to prophecy, which is important to understand, but it's not really the Chidush really in it is that it's not really about the relationship of prophecy to dreams. It's actually the relationship of thought to imagination. And, um, and that really all, all of our thought is done through examples and metaphors. That's how we think about abstract ideas. And what happens in a dream is that all of this sensory input that impinges upon us from the outside world is phased out 
and all that we have is our inner life. So for most people, then what happens to their imagination? It's taken over by their fantasies, their desires, their anxieties, whatever is playing itself out in your dreams. And if you're worried about that, you talk to a psychologist or a rabbi or someone who can help you. But basically, it's showing you something from within you. Okay. Now, if you are a great intellect, so then what the, what's going to happen when all of the distractions from the external stimuli are taken away is that the mind is going to be able to present, is going to be able to gain clarity that will be manifest to you in the dream. And you'll be able to perceive new ideas in the dream. And by the, and as I mentioned, I'm sure when we were in Israel, I mentioned that, um, uh, I should say when you were in Israel, I mentioned that um, that uh, we were that that the uh, that the dream that the phenomenon of insight in a dream is not restricted only to religious matters because there are many many um, cases of inventors who came up with ideas in dreams, um, composers who came up with ideas in dreams, musical ideas and and entire pieces of music. There are cases of authors that came up with ideas for. Um, stories and things like that in dreams um, and scientists who came up with solutions to problems in dreams, meaning that when they were, when their mind was, didn't have to deal with the, uh, or their imagination really wasn't bombarded by external stimuli, the mind was able to see something clearly that it then presented, utilized the imagination to convey to the person. And that's the, um, that's why that works like that. But in the Moshe Rabbeinu, what makes Moshe Rabbeinu unique is that he bypasses the imagination. So since he doesn't need the imagination, he also doesn't need to be asleep. Because what you need, the reason why you need, um, have you ever tried to think about something and you close your eyes, right? If you're trying to really think deeply about something, you close your eyes. Why do you close your eyes? Because as long as your eyes are open, what's coming in, the stimuli that are coming in are a little bit of a distraction. And if you want total focus, you go into your own world. Let's say you're thinking of, I'll give you the most basic example. I'm sure I've given you this example before. Let's say you have to have a, a meeting with somebody and you're very concerned about how the meeting is going to go. Or, or you're going on a date with a girl if you're, uh, but nobody here is, uh, wait, is anybody left uh, single today? Nobody, right? Yeah. So we, uh, let's say you're. Um, Baruch Hashem. Yeah, that's a good thing. Yeah. So, um, so uh, if you are, uh, if you are going on a date, so what do you do? You, you go, you imagine the meeting or you imagine, oh, what if she says this? What if the guy says this? What am I going to say then? Oh, if I say this, they're probably going to do that. And so I won't do that, you know? So you run through the whole thing in your imagination, right? And a lot of times when you do that, you'll either be daydreaming and not paying attention to what's going on around you, or you'll close your eyes to do that. Right. And one of the chidushim actually of Freud that was very sharp was that people used to think it would be better if people didn't dream because dreams destroy your sleep. You can't rest because you have a, a movie going on when you're sleeping. Very distracting. He said, no, it's the opposite. Actually, dreams preserve sleep because what happens is that external stimuli that would otherwise disturb you are filtered out because you're engaged with the dream. But I bet everyone's had the experience. I know I have, and he talks about it in the book, and I'm sure all of you have, where something going on in your dream at the end of the dream turns out to be something that was actually happening in your room, like a loud noise 
that was happening in your room, you were trying to keep sleeping. So in the dream, it became a sound in the dream or it became something going on in the dream. And that let you keep sleeping until it became so much that eventually you woke up, right? So he gives like the example I remember, it's been decades since I read the interpretation of dreams, but I remember he said the one example where uh, somebody saw like dishes crashing on the floor. Like a, a somebody was carrying a big stack of dishes and the dishes were crashing on the floor and the crashing got louder and louder and louder. And then he realized it was his alarm clock. He woke up, you know? So anyway, we're, so a Navi that needs the imagination, that needs imagery to perceive ideas, uh, therefore needs their image imagination free of any external stimuli and has to be in, uh, has to be asleep, also has to be waiting for the moment of insight. He can prepare his mind or she, because it could be a nevi'ah also, prepare their mind for the, uh, for the nevi'ah, but they can't make it happen. Okay. And I, as I mentioned, when we talked about nevi'ah in the past, the way the Rambam explains nevi'ah is the most compelling way and the best way, in my opinion, to understand it, because it, it, it sees nevi'ah as on the continuum of regular thoughts. How do you think about something? You take different examples, you mull it over, you kind of like manipulate things in your mind and sort of try to look at them from different angles. And then finally something clicks, right? So finally, you're, you're thinking about a problem and, and suddenly a solution emerges or suddenly an idea becomes clear. Or, you're, or think of a detective who has a lot of clues and all of a sudden it dawns on them how all the clues fit together into a pattern and they solve the case, right? Things that seem to have nothing to do with each other. That moment of truth is the part that we can't really fully explain. How does the mind go from just kind of toying with the material and the imagination, looking at things in the eyes of the eye of the imagination to suddenly having clarity and illumination. How does that happen? So that's where they bring the idea of the active intellect that everybody talks about, the idea of the sechel apoel. I don't want to go into that. That's like a whole metaphysical thing, but there's no other explanation of how the intellect discovers new ideas from material that everybody else is looking at the same material. How does the intellect all of a sudden go from different examples. And the person who explained this the best was Einstein because he talked a lot about his process of thought and how he would do thought experiments. What were his thought experiments? Imagining different scenarios and what would happen. And he would imagine them and say, hey, wait a second. How come it is that if I was if, under this circumstance, this would happen. And under this circumstance, this would happen. And from the different examples it dawned on him, oh, the only way it could be is if such and such is true about space and time and whatever else. So uh, that's how the mind works. So in a Navi, he has the same thing. The imagery conveys to him the idea. Moshe Rabbeinu doesn't work by imagery. He has direct access to the ideas themselves. So he doesn't need his imagination to be shut off or to be channeled in order to get the, uh, the prophecy. He doesn't need to be passive. He can actively log into his account uh, for, you know, like, tune in 
to the prophecy actively because it's the mind. It's not the imagination waiting for that moment of illumination. And we've all had issues that we've mulled over and thought about again and again and again. And maybe after years of going to the same problem, one day something clicks and we, we see the answer. That's something that we, you know, that's where you see uh, the magic of you know, it's not within our control. You can't force yourself to get to the uh, to the answer. You have to try and you seek and you you play around and then something happens and you you have illumination. So this process is because we're working with the imagination and we're basically holding the trying to get the imagination organized enough and clear enough with the right examples and that everything doing all the groundwork that we can so that the illumination can happen. But and, and that's how we walk through the problem. We talk it through. We discuss the different aspects of it. We we focus on different elements and suddenly something comes that that Moshe Rabbeinu doesn't have to do that. He goes straight to the idea. OK, so since he goes straight to the idea, he doesn't have to have the imagination there. And that's also why Moshe Rabbeinu's Nivuah is written in the third person. It's not written in the first person, meaning it's not personal. His it, what Moshe Rabbeinu writes is not personal. A lot, a, many of the other Nevi'im will say, um, Hashem Eli, right? Because, they're to, because their prophecy is their own personal experience. And we know that Yishayahu, his Nebuot are of a different quality than Yirmiyahu, than Yechezkel. There were different levels. They had different, they had, you know, their, their levels were different. Their language was different. Their imagery was different because they were different people and their prophetic ideas filtered through their imaginations and their experiences. That's why only Moshe Rabbeinu can receive the Torah because the Torah is eternal. It can't be tied to a particular person with a particular set of experiences and a particular uh, limitations or particular influences or whatever. It has to be something that is, is abstracted from any particular situation so that the ideas are eternal. Otherwise, the ideas will be embedded in uh, in the particularities of that navi, essentially. So, uh, the, but that's that's it. I mean, that's why in, a navi cannot. Uh, that's why Moshe Rabbeinu is nevoah. Like the Rambam even says, when I speak about Moshe, he says a funny thing. Everybody kind of like laughs because he says in the morning of I'm not going to talk about Moshe Rabbeinu's nevoah in this book, right? But then he does. But he says I'm not going to because it's not really nevoah. What Moshe Rabbeinu had is something other than nevoah. Calling it nivua is, is using an equivocation. Basically, you're you're using a term. It's like saying that uh, seeing, um, I don't know, to see something and to understand, you use the word see, but it's not the same thing. But he was saying even more than that. He was saying that it would be like using the word see for the ocean and see for your eyes. Like he was saying it's a totally different, it's not the same thing at all. What Moshe Rabbeinu was experiencing and what a Navi experiences is not in the same category. It's uh, it's its own category. So you can't really compare it when you understand Nebuah. And I, but I think at this stage, Moshe Rabbeinu was at a beginning stage of his Nebuah, so we don't have to get onto that. You know, anyway, so what was the question of Moshe Rabbeinu? Okay, you told me to go talk to the Zikinim. What? Oh, did you have a question, Jordan? You had your hand up before, I, 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 and then you put it down. I flushed out. It was on the concept of the Navi Maybe they were just, uh, they weren't formulating the correct interpretation of the ideas in their head, in their imagination, but... Uh, well, the Navi Shekhar has like halachic uh, guidelines, you know? 
Right, so the, the way the Rambam and really the, the Chazal in general get out of the problem of Nivu'ah as a, uh, how can you know? Even the Torah says, how do you know, right? If maybe you will say, It says in, uh, even in, uh, in, in Parashat Shoftim, how will I know the thing that the, uh, or Re'ez, Re'ez, maybe it is, right? But how do I know the word that Hashem did not speak? How do I know that a Navi is false? Well, either he predicts things that don't come true, or he says something that's fundamentally untrue. In other words, if he contradicts one of the foundations of the Torah, or he makes predictions that don't materialize. But other than that, we have no way to authenticate a person's nivuah. And therefore the Rambam says, and very famously, he basically says that the only reason we follow a Navi is because the Torah tells you to follow a Navi if he predicts things correctly. So halachically, you're obligated to follow a Navi who meets the standards of halacha. But that just like, he says, just like if two witnesses come and testify something in the Bet Din, you really, do you know that it really happened? Do you know they really saw that? No, you don't know that. But the halacha says, al pi medim yakum davar, so you follow it. So in the same way, if a Navi says something, uh, if, if a Navi passes the halachic um, uh, benchmark for authentic, authenticity, that's as far as we go. It's a halachically validated Navi. If he sa- and we can follow him and we can listen to him, but, and we have to. But if that Navi says something that shows that he can't really be a Navi, so then he's out. That's, a, that's all. Okay, so. I, I don't want to believe it. I don't want to go on. Okay, we can go on. Yeah.
So Moshe says, they're not going to believe me. Now he's dealing with the people, not so much with the Zekenim. Zekenim will buy my ideas. What about the people? And, uh, and this was, uh, some of you had said you specifically found this part interesting about the uh, signs, right? Hashem said, what is this in your hand? And he said, notice he switches the name Hashem here, especially because um, it's miracle, right? So it's going to be with the name of Hashem. Vayomer mate says I have a stick. Vayomer ashlichu alza vayashlichu alza vayle nachash vayanos Moshe mipanav. Vayomer Hashem el Moshe shelach yadecha veechos beznavo vayishlach yado vayachazek bo vayinim mate bechapo. So he he throws down the staff. It becomes a snake, and then he says, "Pick it up again." He picks it up. It becomes a staff again. That emphasis keeps coming again and again. It's Hashem, but it's the God of their forefathers. It's one and the same. What is the significance of this particular sign? What do you think? Why the stick turning it? There's a lot of things you could have done. Huh? That's the next one. Oh, because he had to run away, you mean, because of the Nachash. Right, but in the end, it becomes the actual sign that he uses, right? So yeah, the Chazal say that Hashem said that was wrong to say that they wouldn't believe in you. Right? That that was kind of an underestimation of the people. But... What? No, but I argue the signs that it's supposed to do in front of the Israel. These are the Bnei Israel ones. We never see any of those after any right? Unless is, is the staff trying to do a snake in front of Paro? Is that considered a sign to the Bnei Israel? No, that's a new thing. Because so far he hasn't told them to do any Because he specifically draws attention to it, right? He says to him, okay. So what, Hashem can't see what Moshe Rabbeinu has in his hand? He's like, what is that in your hand? Is that a, uh, what is that that you have there? He doesn't know. So obviously he knows, but when Hashem asks a person a question, it's always to make them reflect on something, right? right. So uh, he's asking him, what is, the, what is in your hand? What is a mate used for? Especially by a shepherd. Yeah, to, to guide the animals, right? And and it's usually a mate is a symbol of leadership, usually, right? The symbol of leadership, the mate. Sometimes it's called the shevet, actually, which is very interesting that the word shevet and the word mate are both used for stick, and they're also both used for tribe. Right? They're both, the word mate could mean a tribe. The word shevet could mean a tribe. The word mate could mean a stick. The word shevet could mean a stick. Right? We find in the Torah also. Right? Ki yake ish et avdo o et amato bashevet umet tachat yado. That's a pasuk in Parashat Mishpati. So, the, so what is a, 
it's a symbol of leadership. In other words, what makes a tribe is that a tribe is, um, is united by being under some common leadership. That's what makes them uh, a tribe as opposed to a family or just a group. The fact that there are shev- is there's some discipline involved. There's some um, there's somebody on top who is who forms them into a into a shevet or into a mateh. The shevet or mateh physically symbolizes the leader of the group. That leader of the group is what forges them into a cohesive collective, not just a random group of people. Okay, because they're organized by the leadership. In other words, what gives it a structure to make it a shevet is that there's a leader. So that she- that stick symbolizes the position of leadership. Right now, Moshe Rabbeinu is only a leader over the sheep. He's going to become a leader over the flock of the Jewish people, so to speak, in the future. But the idea that the stick, in other words, the stick that is a symbol of human power turns into a snake, which is then something that scares, that he runs away from, is I think a symbolic message also. In other words, the very thing which projects the human being's power and control and imposition of order on things becomes a, comes to life, which of course is, a, is the, the miraculous part, but vayanos Moshe mipanav, he has to run away from it. And then Hashem tells him to grab onto it again, which I don't know how many of you would be willing to do that if you just ran away from the snake, then go and grab it again. You'd have to be really macho to do that, right? But he does. What's the point? The point is that, that power is given by God. Power is subject to the will of God. So that stick that's in my hands that symbolizes my power over the group is actually only it only empowers me as long as God wills. But if it becomes a snake, I run away from it. Meaning Hashem can flip the tables on you and make you uh, a subject instead of a ruler very fast, and then can tell you grab onto the snake and turn it back into a stick again. In other words, the idea is that leadership is in the hands of God. Power is ultimately belongs to God, and that's one of the messages that they need to believe in to follow Moshe against Paro, because Paro, the, the idea that Paro's power is absolute and unassailable and unquestionable. And so to challenge it requires uh, great emunah, the emunah that he's not, he doesn't have the ultimate grip over, the, over his people. He too is subject to, uh, uh, to God's will. So it teaches Moshe Rabbeinu something about power, but it also teaches something about the, uh, the lesson of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. How does a snake fit into that symbolism? What's the, like, why is snake in specific? Because he runs away from it, meaning it's the only animal that it could turn into that uh, would be scary. That, like a snake, a snake symbolizes the lack of human control because it's not domesticated, right? It, and, it, and he runs away from it. And then Hashem says, grab onto it, which I would be like, okay, this is where, this, this is where, where, where we're finished now because I'm not going to grab that snake. There's no way. Right, but Moshe does it. In other words, the idea is so. I'm I'm just explaining why he might have picked that sign. And I think uh, I think uh, Rav Hirsch says this. Uh, the the, uh, the Malbim talks about the meaning of the signs, and that Rav Hirsch talks about the meaning of the signs. Um, I think that's what they say, something like that. And then uh, they both have this element. They both have the element of um, of power, 
and they both have the element of tchiatametim, something dead becomes to, comes to life, right? Which is the ultimate power of Hashem. That's one thing human beings cannot do. We cannot, we can save a life, but we can't make a life. We can make a life naturally, but I'm saying we can't make a dead person come to life or a dead creature come to life. We don't have the ability to do that. Or turn well, an inanimate right. thing into an animate thing. Right? Well, you can't do that. Way, like building his self-confidence in the way, like saying, I'm going to make you a leader, don't worry. Or... Yeah, it's in my hands. It's in my hands. He's showing this to the people, though. Right? So to the people, the idea is that they're going to um, that they're going to uh, see that Hashem is with him, that he's able to do this triata metim, uh, uh, creating an animate thing from an inanimate thing and then back to an inanimate thing is very impressive. But the idea of it being with the staff communicates the concept of political leadership being subject to the will of God and that a human being, whether they are fleeing or they're in control, is not 100% in their power. Yeah. I have a joke about, are the three sides, are they progressive? Or is each one building on the previous one? Well, it seems like it because if you look at the Tarat one, right? It seems like it's another concept of that because what is Tarat really? What is Tarat? Yeah. Let's see, what did it say? Vayomer Hashem lo'od. He puts his hand onto his, uh, under his shirt. Because the 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 message of the of the sign is also a part of the there they everything that happens in uh, the process of Yitzhak Mitzrayim is a part of an educational progression for the people, and so these signs are teaching them also something about the uh, the mutability, I guess, of human power that it's subject to God's will. And so the, um, the seeing that, of course, vind- validates Moshe Rabbeinu's c- c- claim to be a messenger of God, but also demonstrates that human power is limited and granted by God, which doesn't elevate Moshe Rabbeinu as a superhero or a magic man or anything like that. On the contrary, he ran away from his own staff. Right? He ran away from his own stick. Like he's not a superhero. He's just a messenger of God who's learning the same lessons in a way that they are. So, uh, sorry, if I'm understanding correctly, so what you're saying is that the fact that he's going to show through this symbolism that he is also a messenger of God in the same way, I mean, he's subjugated under God in the same way that Aramitani Yaakov were, distinguishes him from the, from the Pharaoh's 
authority in it. But like Tara is the one who's saying it's it's me and only me versus the Abrahamic message that it's not me at all. I'm I'm a messenger of uh, uh, right, and then, well, there's two elements to it. One is that um, one element is that the belief in Yudke Vavke uh, is one thing, and the other thing is that Hashem has an interest and a plan for human beings, and that the human plan is not absolute. The human design that's imposed by a despot like Paro is not absolute. It's subject to God's will, and that's what Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov. The Chidush and Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov wasn't only that they discovered one God. It was what they did with it. It was that they decided to spread that knowledge and they wanted to revolutionize society and make a society that had God's kingship as the foundation instead of human power as a foundation. Right. So this is the fulfillment of their dream. But it's happening now many generations later. So the uh, so the, the second miracle of the tzarat, and then Hashem tells him, "Put your hand back." Right? It turns back to flesh. What is tzarat basically? I think we talked about it uh, in the past. I, I can't remember. We've had so much learning over the past many years, which is a good thing that I can't remember anything. I can't remember usually what I say. I have to go listen back to classes that I gave. To remember what I said, because I can't, I, my memory is not uh, what it used to be, if it ever was. Um, the, so, but the, um, but he, the tzarat really is death. It's partial death. That's what it is. Okay. It's dead flesh. The flesh becomes dead. That's why when Miriam becomes a mitzorat, uh, so Aaron says, al natihi commit. Don't let her be like a dead person. Right. In other words, it, it, it's a it's a type of death. That's why the tumah of tarat is similar to the tumat met. If a mitzvah goes into a house, the whole house becomes tameh. Everything in the house becomes tameh, just like a tumat met. Right. So it's a partial death. So the idea is again tchiata metim of the hand going into the going into a state of tarat and then being healed from the tarat. It's a it's tchiata metim again. It's going from life. To death to life. It's the opposite, actually, of the stick, because the stick went from being inanimate to animate to inanimate again. The, the flesh goes from being animate to inanimate to animate again. Both so they're in that way they're flipped. They're flipped around. But the hand of a person, the yad of a person, the word yad is very prominent in the narrative of the Yitzhak Mitzrayim, because the yad paro meaning the control that Paro has over his environment, real or imagined, is being contrasted with the Yad HaGdola, Asher Asa Hashem, V'shalachti at Yadi V'hiketit Mitzrayim. I'm going to send out my hand and strike Egypt. Right? So the idea of the hand of God, so to speak, and the hand of Paro, hand is your power. Right? It says about, uh, about Yosef, Tachat Yad Paro. It doesn't mean that it's under his hands, Physically, Yad is a power, right? It's the power. So it's a similar sign. The signs complement one, one another in a way. The idea that life and death and, the, and power versus uh, uh, impotence are in the hands of God. One through the staff, which is more maybe the political power. 
one through the natural hand, which maybe means the individual's power over his own life, not necessarily the political realm. Maybe it's a little more basic even than the political, right? It's the, it's the, the in individual. And then you have the third sign. I'm sorry. If they don't believe the first sign, they'll believe the second sign. So then what you do is you take some water and pour it on the ground. They're going to become blood on the bank, of the, on the ground, right? You're going to take water and they're going to turn it to blood. Now, why would he do that? The first two signs are not as good as water turning to blood. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah. And, and, and we know that what happens when the water turns to blood is that all the fish die, right? It specifically says all the fish die. So that goes to an even more fundamental level. In other words, there's, there's, there's political, there's the political symbol of the staff. There's the individual symbol of the hands, right? And then there's water, which is really what sustains all of life not just the human. In other words, it's going even more basic than a human because one of the things that makes human beings unique is our hands, actually. You know, that we have opposable thumbs. No other animals, except, uh, I guess, monkeys, right? No other animals have the thumbs that have the kind of uh, range of motion that we do. And that's why human animals are able to do a lot more than, with their hands than any other creatures, okay? It's, it's one of the unique features of the human body, the thumb. So if you look like a, a dog doesn't have a thumb, a cat, they just have toes, right? They don't have a thumb. A thumb really, you use your thumb for a lot of things. When your thumb doesn't work, you're, it's very hard to use your hand, okay? So the idea may be we're going from the staff, which is political, to the hand, which is human, to the water, which is just, organic life. In other words, all of it is dependent on God. Most of the Mepharshim don't interpret the water that way. They interpret it that it's going from a simple thing of water to a complex substance of blood, or that it's the beginning of the Makot because it was the first of the Makot. But I'm, in, I'm suggesting something that follows the progression instead maybe might be right. I don't know. I'm just talking this out with you guys. So I, do I, the, the, it's good that nobody hears this besides you because I, you know, I'm just saying whatever, uh, wherever the argument leads. Like, it seems to me to make sense. Okay. Why does it say, why does it say uh, in the Sufi text, uh, right. what's the significance of, he just gave him physical science to show them. And he's like, well, if they don't listen to the voice of the first time, listen to the voice of the, the second time. Right. And it seems that's actually what what Moshe is like um, fighting against later on, where he's like, um, uh, I didn't tell you, I told you physical things to do when you're talking about verbal problems. I don't care about your problems. Right. Right. Because whenever you see somebody says that he doesn't listen, it doesn't mean he didn't listen to my physical voice, meaning the, the sounds that are audible to the ear. It means that he didn't get the message. 
So it's saying if they don't listen to the message, meaning they don't get the point. They're not hearing the message. A person can hear but not listen, right? That's uh, they, they, they have a uh, the ability to, uh, you know, they're, they, they, they might see the sign, but they don't get what it really sig- signifies because they're... Um, because they're not thinking into it and understanding it. So the, the call of the oath is the, is the message of it. Actually, a response to what Moshe said, that no Mishnah Right. They won't listen to my voice. They'll listen to the call of the otot. That's a very good point. Very good point. Did you hear that? Yeah. Yeah, that's a very good point. So he said they won't listen to my voice. And I think they're going to listen to the voice of the signs, meaning you won't have to do that much argument. You're not going to have to talk them into believing you're a shaliach because you're going to show them these otot and they will do the talking for you. I like that. Good point. Good one. Okay. Also, also, why, why is he giving him signs? Maybe there, there's some fundamental Why is he giving him signs that it's seemingly not coming? If they don't listen to this one, then do this one. If they don't listen to that one, then do that one. There are some, you know they're going to listen to you. Obviously, like, there's a human element. Well, we're just giving a sign that they'll listen. Yeah, exactly. Just give them a sign that they'll listen to But What's this three options? Like we see that anywhere else? Like, is, are these signs? Is Hashem trying to show the Jews that God may feel like you could be saved to believe in Moshe? Like, what are what's the goal? What are the goals of these signs? The goal of a sign seems to be that they will trust Moshe as a representative of God. It's one thing to 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 be able to say to teach them knowledge of God and maybe to let them in on some ideas about God and maybe God's plan, but to claim that God has chosen you is a big thing. In terms of imlo yaminu, I mean, I think the answer is that uh, that there's two ways to answer it. But um, from the perspective of Moshe Rabbeinu, since human beings have free choice and they may or may not, probably the way it is is some people were convinced by the first one, some people by only the second one, and some people by the third one. Meaning you'll need enough in your arsenal that if you encounter any resistance, you have more to do, to use. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to use all of them, but you have these in, at your disposal to use them. And from Moshe Rabbeinu's perspective, he doesn't know what kind of a resistance or pushback he's going to encounter. So he needs to know what he has in his toolbox to, uh, to convince them. So, um, so the... Uh, uh, people are different. They'll respond to different things. Some people will respond to political rhetoric. Some people will respond to individual rhetoric. Some people will respond to... Universal rhetoric. It just depends on uh, what type of person there is. And like when you're trying to convince it's a whole nation to leave another nation, you know, it's not one person that you're trying to convince. You're to the plethora of different types of people. So you need right, to it could be. It could be like what Hashem is saying is, oh, you know, and for those who don't respond to the first one. You have the second one, and for those who don't, meaning he's not saying I don't know if they are or not. He's saying there will be some that the first one resonates, some the second one resonates, some the third. Some don't need it at all. Once they hear your uh, speech about God, they're going to believe you. All right? So, yeah, I think that's I think that's a way to understand it. Now, um, now Moshe Rabbeinu comes with the famous objection. Right? Vayomer Moshe Lashem, bi Adonai, lo ish dvarim anochi, gam mitemol, Okay, 
I have a thick, heavy tongue. I can't speak. So it's a more basic issue. And seemingly this is a concern about presenting the message to Paro, oh, not to the Jewish people. Because he's, he's done with the Jewish people part now, right? What are they going to ask me about Hashem? They're going to ask me to prove that I'm really a messenger. But then where do I go from there? I don't know how to talk. I'm gonna, I don't know how to speak. I don't have the gift of gab. So what am I going to do? And uh, of course, we have two interpretations here of what the Chvad Lashon is. You have the traditional interpretation that Moshe Rabbeinu had a stutter or a lisp or something like that. He had difficulty physically speaking, in which case he was saying that uh, he didn't feel confident speaking before Paro and, and make, because he, he was assuming, and you see from this an important principle in Nivua also, Hashem gives you a mission, it doesn't necessarily mean that every step of the way is going to be miraculous. Right? You assume the least. When Shmuel is told by Hashem, go anoint David as a replacement king for Shaul, what does David say? Shaul's going to hear and he's going to kill me. Can't just go do that. So Hashem says, you're right. Go say you're doing a korban in Bethlehem. Right? So uh, what, what? Hashem has... Hashem gives them an excuse. Say so you're going to go about in Beit Lechem, and it'll be okay. Right? So the uh, so basically uh, Shmuel uses a naturalistic means to avoid the trouble. So Moshe is like, okay, I have a plan. I have a message. I have a a, a, a purpose, a mission. How am I going to do this? I don't know how to go give a political speech to Paro. We didn't even get to that part yet, right? He said before, who am I to go to Paro? But his main discussion up till now has been, how am I going to get the Jews on board? Now that I have the Jews on board, how am I going to talk to Paro? I don't know how to do that. I'm not a speaker. Now that's oh, one interpretation. Then you have the Raul Bag's interpretation that I really like it. I don't know how much it fits with the Pshat, but I really like it anyway. That the Raul Bag says, it's not that Moshe Rabbeinu didn't had a physical speech impediment. He says that Moshe Rabbeinu was so involved in the depth of reflecting on God that he didn't have the ability to communicate with people. He, he didn't know how to speak the language of the people. Like the absent-minded professor type person. Some of the greatest minds in the world have difficulty communicating their very profound ideas to everyone else. But also, he didn't grow up with the people. He grew up in Paro's house. So, in another way, like, why would the Paro listen? Like, he's not on the people's level for them to listen to. Well, that was his concern before, right? Because he said, Now he's concerned about his speaking ability. But the question is, what kind of problem is it? Is it a problem of speaking that it's like, I'll give an example. Like, I, I like it's it's very difficult for certain individuals to address certain groups. Like, for example, I find like speaking to teenage boys very difficult because what interests them and uh, and and the way that they think and their focus and and all that is so foreign from where I am that a lot of times it's hard for me to be able to get into their head enough to communicate something that's going to resonate for them. It's, I it's don't been, know why it's yeah, and it, yeah, but but then there are some people who are really good at that, right? 
like uh, remember uh, Rabbi Jensen that we had in the Talmud Torah. He was like incredible at taking these kids who normally would just be watching TV or on their phone and he had them like mesmerized for two hours every single uh, Talmud Torah because he knew how to talk to the kids. He, he knew how to get into their mind and get their interest. And that's a very right, that's a unique right, skill. Right, what's the distinction? Yeah, I it's it's hard to tell because nobody really seems to nobody really seems to say the difference between the two of them that I can think of. But the 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 more fundamental question that they deal with is was it a uh, a cognitive limitation or a or a physical limitation? If it's a physical limitation then that means that Hashem chose Moshe Rabbeinu purposely because he didn't want a smooth-talking politician to save the Jews from Mitzrayim. That would defeat the whole purpose if he got a smooth-talking politician to come in and persuade Paro to let the Jews go. That would just be exchanging one human leader for another one. Okay? So therefore, he chose a broken vessel on purpose. He chose somebody that it will only be the content of what they say and not the form or the style that will be that will will make the point it won't be that he overpowers them with his smooth rhetoric that's the interpretation of most of the inter, of the of the commentaries but the uh, but the Ralbag has this idea that no Moshe Rabbeinu's mind is so far from any interest or connection to the culture of the people or the culture or the mentality of a, of a paro, that he's not going to have any common ground to speak to them. It's like some, let's say like you get some rabbi from, uh, it comes from the most Haredi neighborhood in uh, B'nai Brak or Borough Park or whatever with a long beard who doesn't have any connection to the outside world. And he comes and he speaks in one thirty, Right? So like, it's very hard for them to, it's hard for the rabbi to relate to the people in 130. It's hard for the people in 130 to relate to that rabbi because they don't have much common ground of discourse, you know, and, and it's fine. I remember it happened to me one time in my synagogue in Maryland that this rabbi came was this big Kabbalist. For some reason, he came to my, he happened to be in my community for Shabbat. I don't remember why he ended up there, but he got up and he started saying very odd things way he he spoke for 45 minutes straight he insisted in speaking in english even though his english was not so great and it was yeah it was mine like people were coming up to me and saying can we stop him i'm like what am i supposed to do like once a guy gets up there it's, it's hard you know um but it was there and interestingly believe you probably wouldn't be surprised to know that there were a few people who were like, wow, this guy's a mikubal, and they, they, they hung out with him the rest of the Shabbat. But most of the people were just like, what is this, you know? The, no, no frame of reference to relate to him. So that is what, that is what, um, actually, even I was, uh, I'm, I mean, he was telling stories and whatever, but they were just like very elaborate, 25-minute long stories about Kabbalistic miracles and this and that. And it was just like way not what the people were used to and not what they, not in their realm of experience. So according to the Ralbag, that's the problem that Moshe Rabbeinu has connecting to the people. He doesn't know how to connect to them um, 
culturally, intellectually, and he explains, therefore, what? That the Pasuk says, when he says um, that, uh, I, I, that I have a uh, speech impediment, yesterday and the day before, even from the time that I started, you started speaking to your servant. So the Ralbag will take that and say, ah, it means that from the point that he became a Navi, which apparently this wasn't his first prophecy ever. It was just his first shlichut. It wasn't his first prophecy. So therefore he, um, he uh, from the time that he attained the level of prophecy, he was no longer able to bridge the gap or he didn't have the motivation or whatever to speak to ordinary people about ordinary things. It didn't, he wasn't able to. Just like the absent-minded professor, that his his mind is in a totally different uh, place, and he doesn't know how to how to convey knowledge to ordinary people. Like the Yawa Navi, right? To I mean, you get the idea. you get the sense though that Eliyahu Navi could speak to people if he so chose. You know, or or he could be an insult comic. You know. He, he was he had that sarcastic wit. So like that wittiness, you don't find that with Moshe Rabbeinu. You never find Moshe Rabbeinu cracking a joke. He's not, it's not, his, it's not his thing. Who is the other Navi that makes a joke is a Shmuel Navi. Because he comes to Shaul and Shaul says, oh, Hakimoti at Devar Hashem. And then Shmuel says, oh, what is the sound of sheep that I hear? You know, he's being sarcastic and saying like, uh, you know, why do I hear that there's stuff left over from Amalek? So like they had a sense of humor. Yeah. Um, if, if we're going with like the Allah's interpretation that we're going more, and we're going more along the lines of uh, intellectual gap that's not able to bridge the natural speech impediment, could we say that the contributing factor was the fact that, that amongst people who grew up in horrible conditions, Moshe grew up in a palace, Folded with plates and spoons that didn't, you know, and, and it's a common theme that people who grew up in royalty might have a hard time connecting with people who didn't have bread and water. Right, but he should be able to talk to Paro. Oh, this is a- oh. yeah, he should be able to talk to Paro if he really right. had the background. That I mean, so so either way you go, meaning whether you go with the Ral Bag's interpretation or you go with the more traditional interpretation. The the uh, the final result is the same. Hashem doesn't want a person who's a smooth talker. He doesn't want a guy. He doesn't want Moshe Rabbeinu to go and give a popular TED talk in the uh, in the palace of the Paro, and then Paro is so inspired that he decides to let all the people go. That would not be the point, uh, because the whole purpose is that the letting of the people go should be only a function of the acknowledgement of Malchut Shamayim. If it's not a function of the acknowledgement of Malchut Shamayim, then the whole project failed, right? And that's the, that's the, uh, that's like, for example, in Yovel, the Yovel year, when do you free the slaves in the Yovel year? On Yom Kippur. On Yom Kippur, you blow the shofar of the Yovel and the slaves are freed, meaning the highest level of our recognition of God 
That's when we release the slaves. It's a function of our recognition of the Malchut Hashem that we release our slaves. It's a function of the recognition of Malchut Hashem and Gilui Shechina that their slaves are released. If it's because Moshe Rabbeinu is a smooth talker or he makes a really good case, he's like Johnny Cochran, which I don't know if you remember him. That's before your time. He was a smooth talking lawyer that helped uh, O.J. Simpson walk, uh, you know, be acquitted for a crime that he committed. And, um, and many other people as well, he helped uh, get acquitted for crimes that they were guilty of. So uh, that's, a, that's a certain art. That, that, would, that would mean that there was no actual justice or necessarily any meaning in the release of the Jews from slavery. It was just that he pulled on the heartstrings of Paro and he convinced him to do it. That wouldn't be good. Yeah, what are you going to say, Dan? Uh, Rabbi, so you see you're saying that the focus is shifting to toward Paro. Yeah. But I, I always read it as him continuing talking about talking to the people because you all, like he thinks that you also need a certain eloquence to convince the people of the job. So I, I just see it as a continuation. Probably both. I mean, I mean, probably both. You're probably right. I mean, probably both. You know, it's like in both cases, whether it's with Paro or with the people, you don't want a charismatic leader that uses rhetoric to motivate the people. You want the content to motivate the people. You know, that's the, that's the thing. So yeah, for the people too. And he does say, that Aaron speaks to the people for Moshe also. So the, the thing is, it's like the uh, it's like Nate Zabulani gave us analogy. You know, if you bring a rabbi or a teacher who gives a lot of fluff and they tell a lot of stories and they tell a lot of things that make that move people's emotions, right? Versus a rabbi who teaches, let's say, ideas that are tougher to uh, process. So he gave the analogy of you know a table filled with sweets and candy and uh, and cake and you know all of those things on one side and the other side is you know cucumbers and, uh, and, and radishes and, and healthy food and salad, you know, they, it's going to be very difficult. M most people are going to go for the table that has all the, um, all of the, uh, the sweet stuff on it. They're not going to go for the, for the table that has the vegetables on it. So Hashem wanted the people to go for the vegetables, not for the sweets, meaning he didn't want whether it was Paro. Remember the education of the Makot is for the Jews and for Paro. Both of them are supposed to be doing what they do based upon their understanding of Hashem, not based upon some kind of a moving speech. You want to see a moving speech? I will recommend to everybody one day, if you haven't seen it before, go and look at Mr. Rogers. Have you ever seen this Mr. Rogers video where PBS, you've seen it before? Amazing video. Where First of all, Mr. Rogers was like an amazing person, but... He um, and really a remarkable person and a genuine, a genuinely remarkable person. He, there was a Congress. Have you seen it? Yeah, he goes to Congress and they were going to cut off the funding for PBS, the PBS funding, and he basically this this Italian, you know, um, congressman or whatever who has like no patience for any spending of any, you know, tax dollars or whatever. He turns the guy into putty in his hands in about 10 minutes. Now I grew up watching Mr. Rogers, so he could turn anybody into putty in his hands. Um, like you could, he, he had this power, 
you know, but like you'll, there's another one. He got a lifetime achievement award at one of these like award shows with all these celebrities. Okay. And he went up to give the speech. And of course, in his usual way, he didn't take any credit for anything. He's like extremely anav, extreme anav saying, I give credit to everyone else. And then he said, we're all going to have a moment of silence and reflect upon someone to whom we owe a debt of gratitude in our lives. And all of these highfalutin celebrities, um, you know, these big shots fall silent in the face of Mr. Rogers. Okay. Like, and, and I remember seeing this video on YouTube years ago and people are commenting like all these big shots, these wealthy celebrities with all this power and influence, all that. When Mr. Rogers tells you to be quiet, like you're quiet. That's it. Everyone was quiet. They listened to what he said. You know, it's like he had this power. He did. He was not a kvad lashon uchvad peh. You know, he had he had this power to get people to move people. And it, thankfully, thankfully, you know, Mr. Rogers actually was a good person. And the values that he, <laughs> huh? He's a genuine person. Yeah, he was extremely, in real life, my grandmother once met him. My grandmother passed away recently, but she once met him. She said he was exactly the same in real life that he was on the show. Yeah, and if you, if you read the biographies of him, everyone says the same thing. He was exactly the same in real life. He was genuine. He was a genuine, he was a, he was a religious guy too. He was a religious yeah. Christian, but he, he was so genuine and he wanted to help people. Like he was really like a, good-hearted person so his thankfully his message was good but if you have that kind of power over people and your message is bad you can also uh, you can also have an effect that's not so good and so the fact is like the the point is that the message is supposed to be the deciding factor and not the medium and uh, and and so Moshe Rabbeinu being kvad pe kvad lashon is good because it means that both the people and Paro are going to be responding to the content and not to the style. Right? So, uh, who gave a mouth to a person? Who makes a person mute? Or deaf? Or having sight or being blind? It is I, Hashem, who grants you the ability to do what you're going to do. So go. Don't think it's going to be reliant on your abilities. I'm going to tell you what to say. I'm going to instruct you in what to say. Okay. So in other words, he's telling Moshe Rabbeinu that I'm not going to cure your, uh, your difficulty with speech. But I can guarantee you, I'm going to guide you and give you the right words to say so the message is heard. It's not going to depend upon your natural. I don't want a natural uh, 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 public speaker to be, the, to be the person. I don't want a natural charismatic leader. I want a person who's going to convey the content as I instruct them, and the content is going to speak for itself. Right? That, that, that's what he's telling. And so Moshe says, Please, Hashem, send somebody else. That's his last plea. Like, after everything, after all the convincing, after every objection is addressed, after every problem, finally just says, you know what? This is not for me. I just want to be left alone. 
get somebody who this is for them. They're they're interested in politics. They're interested in leadership. It's not for me. And that's the uh, that's the um, like the Rambam's son says in his perush. Why why does he say that? He says, look, I want to spend my life contemplating the truths of Hashem. I don't want to have to deal with this nonsense. I don't have to be deal with all these uh, this complication. This is not for me. Take somebody who's interested in being a leader to do this kind of thing. I don't want to be involved. That was his last plea. The way the Rambam's son understands the last plea is, even if the whole plan is great and everything is accounted for and everything will work out, I don't want to be the person to do it. I have my own sense of what I want to do with my life in service of God, and it's not this. I'm not up to it. And then, of course, Hashem. He says, fine, I'll give you a partner. Okay? The partner will be Aaron. Aaron is the guy who has the natural social gift. He was known as the Rodef Shalom, Ohev Shalom, Rodef Shalom. He has a natural social gift. That's why it says when, when Aaron died, everybody was sad when Aaron died because everybody loved Aaron because he was the person that everyone felt connected to. He had the connection. So Hashem, it's, what is the punishment? The punishment is that instead of Moshe embodying all of the role that he is given, he's going to share that role with Aaron. It's going to be split between him and Aaron because Moshe says, I don't feel up to the task of doing it. But why is Hashem angry with Moshe? What's the reason why it's a, what is the critique of Moshe? He just doesn't want to do it. He doesn't feel up to the task because it's not for him. He's not a politician. He's not a born speaker. He doesn't want to do it. Why is Hashem getting angry with him? What, what's the, what's the chet in that? Right? It seems like he did some chet and therefore, and, and Aaron being his partner is a type of an onish. In fact, it says that he would have been the Kohen Gadol if he hadn't requested the support from Aaron. Then Moshe would have been the Kohen Gadol too. So it was taken away from him. I don't know if this helps or hurts. Uh, it could be complete nonsense. But I feel like I remember learning somewhere that anytime that it says, uh, like, or like, or like, it's that flaring of the nostrils is a relation to the yeah, yeah, the Rambam says that in the Moran Bochim. That Hashem's Bechara'af uh, always means Avodah Zorah. And of course, everybody argues on him and says, what are you talking about? What about this example? There's so many examples of Bayichara'af Hashem where it doesn't seem like Avodah Zorah. Yeah, but right? that, uh, so that's the Buddha's idea is, I want to go into the corner and, and contemplate uh, um, God's Right. Yeah. Um, I think um, 
I think that the idea might be something like that. In other words, he, he, his chet was in attaching too much significance to the, uh, to the rhetoric aspect. In other words, he, in other words, his concern is I'm not a, I'm not, I don't have rhetoric. I don't have the art of speaking. I don't have the art of politics. He separated the two, the divine mission from the political aspect, from the speaking aspect of the mission. And he all, almost made it a separate entity as if, um, you know, as if there are two realms. There's the realm of knowledge of God and living according to God's will. And then there's the political realm. It's like a different thing. That's like a type of Abu Dazwa. In other words, he's separate. He's dividing up the, the reality into two frameworks instead of realizing that those two frameworks have to be welded together or blended or united in order for human society to be a godly society. In order for human society to be a godly society, you have to take social and political institutions and political discourse, and you have to take ideas about God, and you have to find the point at which they connect. But basically, he's saying to Hashem, just find somebody else to take them out of slavery, and why? And let me be involved in the realm of the metaphysical and thinking about God, and let somebody else deal with the political problem that these people are suffering, and that they need to be educated. Well, that's not for me. So he's distinguishing between the two things, and that's and then so then you have two different individuals: the one who is the brains behind it, Moshe Rabbeinu, and the one who delivers it to the people in a form they can understand. But that happened because Moshe Rabbeinu was thinking of those things as two different roles instead of seeing that those two roles really should be united, that the person who gains that understanding and knowledge should be the same person who is able to filter it down or deliver it to the people in a way that's uh, compelling to them. And if he needs God's help to do that, he needs God's help to do that. And that's even better because that means that he doesn't have rhetorical or political skill that can become something in its own right. He doesn't have that. His rhetorical and political skill will be limited only to the content that really has meaning where God is helping him. He won't be able to go beyond that. And that's the beauty of it. Because the problem is that a person who's very charismatic or a great speaker or whatever might have a kernel of truth in their ideas, but there's also a lot of other stuff in there. And it's that a lot of other stuff that, some, that makes them larger than life and takes away from the content that they're conveying. Moshe Rabbeinu wouldn't have that. He would only have the target of the content. That's the beauty of it. But Moshe Rabbeinu saw that uh, or felt that these are two different realms. There's the realm of the guy who's going to be the talker and somebody like Aaron. It actually says, the Chazal said, send Aaron. He's, uh, he's very rooted among the people. He can teach them about God and he can take them out. But Hashem wants a revolution in the understanding of God. Something that only Moshe Rabbeinu could deliver. And only a person who, Davka, because he's above the political and he's out of the political, his involvement will be pure, will be purely directed to and calibrated to the needs of the circumstances and won't have any ulterior motive or any additional component to it at all. You know, and, and that's, that was the chayda, I think, of Moshe Rabbeinu. Maybe you could say that's the Avodah Zorah, like you're saying. The Avodah Zorah is when you split two things, when you divide and you create a duality in reality instead of unifying. Instead of saying that this is supposed to be unified, there's a duality. There's the realm of the social political and there's the realm of the divine. But where's the bridge between the two? You know? So, okay. So I think we, we want to take a break. And uh, when do we want to reconvene?
Okay. Okay. Are we doing the parsha? 